Well, hey, good morning, everybody. Uh, welcome to Resurrection City Church. My name is Julie, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm just so glad that you're all here with us this morning to worship. Uh, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to jump into our message this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us together, for providing us this space to come to worship you through being together, through worship, through song, and through hearing your word. Lord, would you speak to us, as Zach said this morning, would you help us to uh, see more of your grace so that we can take that with us and, and be people who are filled with grace as we leave this place. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so if you have not been uh, with us, if you're just joining us for the first time, we are in a series right now that we're calling According to Grace. And basically what we're doing is we're, we're looking at how grace is one of God's defining characteristics. And we see this, we're told this in Romans, um, that God acts in a pattern according to grace, which Joel talked about a few weeks ago. And now we've been kind of looking back to sort of test to see how this is true. So we're looking at some of the stories from the Old Testament uh, to see how we can see God's grace working through those different stories and how he continues to act in a pattern of grace. And this week, we're going to be looking at the story of Esther. And you guys know I love a good story, and let me tell you, this is a good one. This is a wild story. If you've never read it before, um, we're only going to probably get through about half of it, so I encourage you to go home and read the rest of it, but it's a, it's a juicy one. So the, we're going we're gonna to dive into it, um, and because I'm going to try to sort of summarize parts of it, you're going to get a little bit of a story time with Pastor Julie on this gloomy Sunday morning. So this story takes place after the exile of God's people in the Old Testament. So the Jews were taken captive by the Babylonians, and then eventually the Persians took over for the Babylonians. So if you are a map person, here is your map. I am not one of you. <laughs> um, I wish I was better with maps and directions, but you can sort of see the Persian Empire expanded pretty far. They kind of took over a lot of different things. So in the time of Esther, this is what's going on. Why do you need to know this? Uh, because the people in this story are Jews who were taken here during the exile, and while most of them have moved back, these people have stayed. So the story takes place in Persia. And it's important to know that just because if you're in Persia and you're Jewish, you are in the minority. So it's not a cool thing to be Jewish in the Persian Empire. And the story picks up uh, with a drunk, egotistical king named Xerxes. So can you say Xerxes with me? Thank you. So he's throwing a rager. He's got like a 180-day crazy party going on with his buddies. And while he's drunk, he has the thought, I should have my queen, whose name was Vashti. So if you can say Vashti says, I should have her come and parade around in front of all of my drunk buddies. And I hope all of you just cringed inside and immediately said, nope, that's not, that's not a good idea, uh, because that is what Vashti said. She said, no, I'm not doing that. Uh, and Xerxes had such a big ego that when he, she says no to him, he says, well, fine. I'm going to write a decree that says you are never allowed back in the palace again. And he kicks her out. So... See you later, Vashti. She's done. Uh, and I want you to remember the reaction that he has to her when she disobeys him, because that's going to be an important thing later. So remember that. And so then 
The story says, a little bit later, as uh, Xerxes finally chilled out over this whole Vashti thing, he decides he still wants a queen. So he decides to basically create the first, first version of The Bachelor. Um, you thought that the first season of The Bachelor being in 2002 was old, but this is like, this is the original. And he puts out a call for all the young women to come and basically audition to be queen. Seriously, I'm telling you, this is a wild story. You really need to read the whole thing. And uh, while this is all going on, there's a guy named Mordecai. So can you say Mordecai with me? Mordecai. I apologize. I sort of ran out of images. So now we're, <laughs> now we're into the cartoon versions. Um, so Mordecai is a Jewish guy. He is one of the people who came to Persia during the exile. And he has essentially adopted his younger cousin, whose parents have died. We don't know what happened or when, but basically he's taken her in. I don't know if any of you have cousins that can sort of be like the age of your aunts or uncles. I definitely do. I'm the youngest grandchild on both sides of my family. So I've got cousins that are definitely older than me. Um, and so that's sort of the situation. So Mordecai uh, adopts his uh, younger cousin because she has become an orphan. And her name is Hadassah, which is her Jewish name. But she goes by the Persian name of Esther. So if you say Esther with me. So Esther goes to compete in the Bachelor Queen edition. And she actually does really well. She's a favorite. But she never reveals that she's Jewish. She sort of keeps that under wraps. I kind of imagine it like, you know, when they do those interviews, like off to the side. She's telling people, but no one else there knows. I don't actually, I haven't actually watched The Bachelor since like 2002, so I couldn't tell you if they still do that, but uh, so no one else knows. She kind of keeps that under wraps. And the king likes Esther so much that he gives her the final rose, and she is made queen, and they throw yet another large party. Now, meanwhile, there's so much happening in the story. So meanwhile, Mordecai, he hears about an assassination plot on the king, and he's like, well, this isn't good. And so he actually decides to do something about it. He goes to Esther and he says, hey, you need to know about this plot that's going on and you need to tell the king so that we can save him. So Esther tells the king and they manage to get rid of the plot and the king is fine. But somehow, however, Mordecai doesn't actually get the credit for this. A different guy named Haman does. So say Haman with me if I can get the slide to advance. Got another cartoon image for you. <laughs> um, and so Haman is one of the king's officials, and he might be even more egotistical than the king, somehow. And so when he gets credit for stopping this assassination, it goes straight to his head. And he wants everyone who passes him in town to bow to him. And Mordecai, for obvious reasons, is annoyed by this and doesn't want to do this. And so he does not bow uh, to Haman whenever he passes. Because Haman is such a narcissist, this makes him very angry. So angry that he decides he doesn't just want to kill Mordecai, he wants to kill all the Jews in the entire land. And so somehow he convinces the king to let him sign an order that says that all of the Jews will be killed or people can go and try to kill them on this particular day in the calendar. And this is where we get to kind of the passage I want to read today and kind of talk through. So Mordecai is obviously very upset about this order because not only will he be killed, but all of his people who are left uh, in Persia. 
So he goes to Esther and he asks her to talk to the king once again and beg him to change the order, to say that the Jews will not be killed. So we're going to pick up here with Esther's response to Mordecai's request. So this is in Esther chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. It says, Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they will be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. So there's some kind of ancient law here that if someone wants to, I don't know, to me I'm like, I don't know if this was everybody or if just Xerxes made this law. I wouldn't be surprised if it was just him because he seems like he's got a big head. But if you come to him without being called, he can decide to have you killed on the spot or to extend his scepter to you so that you can come and talk to him. And so Esther is saying, hey, I, you know, I, I have not been called to see the king in like a month. What am I supposed to do? You want me to just approach him on my own and risk being killed? And I want you to remember how I told you, I wanted you to remember how he responded to Vashti when she did something that the king didn't want him to do. So we, we know he could do this. He would easily uh, take Esther out of, the, out of her queen role and maybe even kill her. So Esther knows this is a big deal. So we go on and we're going to see um, what Mordecai says back to how he responds to Esther. So this is again in chapter 4. Uh, verse 12 says, When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, picking up in verse 13, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance from the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. All right, so let's give the story a little pause and leave you with a little cliffhanger moment. Think about the whole story that I just talked through. What was missing from the story? Or maybe who was missing? Who did I not reference at all in that entire story? God. Yeah, the whole book of Esther, God isn't mentioned once. And for some people, this is a really big problem. Um, Luther had a huge issue with the book of Esther. He thought it was like too Jewish nationalism, and he thought that because it didn't talk about God, he wanted to like get rid of it, pull it out of the Bible. But when we read the Bible, we have to consider the style that it's written in along with what the words actually say. Because style, or how something is written, informs the message that is being written. So we need to apply this to principle when we're reading scripture, right? We think about this with, with terms of genre. If we're reading something that's supposed to be poetry, we're going to read it different than if it's supposed to be a letter. Uh, and the same thing happens with even within those genres, like how the narrative is written matters to understanding what the narrative is trying to tell us. Let me give you a non-biblical example of this, right? Think about these two text messages. It's, it says the same thing, right? Same message, but very different style and probably communicates something very different. I'm betting that some of you are just like sweating just looking at the message on the left. Uh, it uh, definitely communicates something different just by how it is written. And the same thing is in the Bible, it's in the book of Esther. So we have to ask ourselves, why would the author choose to leave God out of the story 
Why would they write it in the way that they did? Now, in addition to leaving God's name out of the story, there's also a high frequency of something uh, that's called, a literary term, is called peripety. You say peripety? It's the last thing I'll make you say out loud. Uh, and it, what it means is a sudden, unexpected change of fortune or a reverse of circumstances. And if you think about it, just even in the, the four chapters I've you know, kind of summarized so far, we've already seen a high number of this happening. Vashti was queen, and then now she's not allowed in the palace. Esther was just a random girl, and now she's queen. Mordecai saved the king from an assassination, and now he's about to be assassinated himself. And if you read the rest of the book of Esther, there's a ton of more examples of this as it goes on. So when you consider both the combination of God's name not being mentioned and this high frequency of these peripeties, these unexpected reversal of fortunes, it's like the text is practically screaming at us to see that it's God who is working behind the scenes in all of these big peripety moments. It really helps us see one of the big themes and the big takeaways from the book of Esther, that God's grace is always working. Even when it's behind the scenes, even in places like Persia, where there's not many people who are following God, even when things are scary or difficult, God's grace is always working. And when you think about it, grace itself is kind of like one big peripety, right? It's a huge, sudden reversal of fortunes. We deserve one thing, but we're given another. We deserve death, but we're given life. We're, once we're lost, now we're found. And if you think about the story of Esther, Esther didn't do anything to deserve being queen. It just so happened that the king happened to get mad at Vashti at the time he did, and it just so happened that he decided he wanted another queen, and Esther just so happened to be the right age at the right time in the right place, knowing the right people, so that she could end up in the place that she's in. So when you start to hear all of those it-just-so-happened moments, or it was a coincidence, that's when we need to be on the lookout for God's grace working behind the scenes. And if you're someone who follows Jesus, and you were to tell me your story of how you came to know God, I would bet that your story had some of those just-so-happens moments. Whether it happened to be that you just so happened to grow up in a family that brought you to church or talked to you about God, or if it just so happened another way. For me, I can think of so many moments, um, including like the girl who lived next door to me in college, right? Like there's all these things that just so happen, but they ultimately lead you towards knowing Jesus and, and making the choice to follow him. God's grace often works behind the scenes in our lives, and we can just be really slow to see it sometimes. Either because we give ourselves the credit, right? Like, I worked hard, I made this happen, I'm the one who made these choices. Or because we, we just call it a coincidence. But God's grace is always working behind the scenes because we know that it's God's pattern to work according to grace. We know that that's who he is. He's a gracious God. And when we think about the story of Jesus, a lot of the steps leading up to his saving grace were not what you would have expected. He didn't overthrow the government. Instead, he allowed himself to be murdered. He didn't escape crucifixion, but he endured it. 
And he didn't come back to life right away. He waited a while. He did rise on the third day. So even when it doesn't seem like God is moving, he's working according to his pattern of grace, not something that we can trust. And when we look back at the story of Esther, Mordecai seems to see this. He's the one who, he doesn't use the God language, but he's the one who says and points out that this just so happens grace is happening to Esther when he says, maybe you've been raised to the status of queen for such a time as this. And I want to spend the rest of our time together talking about how we respond when we're made aware of God's grace working in our life. So Mordecai points it out. He says, hey, maybe you're here for such a time as this, and now it's the time to look at how do we respond when that happens? How do we react to God's grace when it appears to us? Because if I had to sum up the big idea of this message, it's that God's grace is always working, and it matters how we respond to that when we see it. So let's look at Mordecai and Esther kind of as our guides throughout this. So let's start with uh, something that Mordecai kind of does for Esther. He helps her remember who she is. So remember I said in the beginning that this story takes place after the Jews have been exiled, they've been forcibly removed from their homeland, and now they're living in this strange land. And a lot of them have actually moved back, so there's really not a lot of Jews living in, this t- in Persia at the time. There's a lot of people around them who don't follow God. And in some ways, this is probably sounds a little bit familiar, because in, I think at times it can start to feel for us like we're in the minority of, as people who follow Jesus, and it's not always the most popular thing to be a Christian right now. And because of this, Esther hid many aspects of her identity, right? I told you she changed her name, and she didn't tell anybody that she was from a Jewish family. And when Mordecai tells her that the Jews are in danger, in danger he reminds her, you're one of us too, And he says, do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. So he, in sort of, it's sort of a little bit of a warning to her, but I also think it's more than that. I think it's calling her to remember who she really is. He's calling her to remember her identity as one of God's children, as someone who has seen and heard about God's faithfulness throughout uh, generations, We don't really know for sure, but I'm guessing if Mordecai is the one who raised her, he was probably telling her those stories about God's faithfulness through the exile and through all these difficult times. He might have told her the stories of Abraham and Moses that we talked about in the last few weeks, how God promised to be with his people and to make them into a great nation. So he calls her to remember who you are. You belong to a family history that's defined by grace, You follow a God that's characterized by grace. Something that we can remember, too, as we find ourselves in difficult situations. We can see that God's grace is still working behind the scenes, and that we need to remember our own identity as part of that. That we belong to a family defined by Jesus' death and resurrection, the ultimate show of God's grace. And that grace is part of our identity, too. So I think the first thing we learn from Esther and Mordecai is that we need to remember who we are. The second thing uh, is to have faith that God will work again. The thing about Mordecai's response in all of this that really gets me is when he says that if you remain silent, so he's saying, Esther, if you don't do anything about this, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. He says it so confidently. Like he knows, yeah, I'm making a plea. I want Esther to do this. But if she doesn't, 
I know that God's going to be faithful, and he's still going to protect us some other way. He believes that even if Esther says no to going to the king, he doesn't have to worry. And this guy has seen a lot. (laughs) He's been through a lot in his time in this exile and all of these other pieces of his life. And he still believes that God is faithful to keep his promises. I think so often for us, when we are in difficult circumstances that make us question God's grace and his faithfulness, instead of looking at what God has done, we often just look to our present circumstances and say, all right, God, but what have you done for me lately? Because I don't feel like you're being faithful right now. But Mordecai, I think he must be looking back to say, I've seen God be faithful, and I know he's going to do it again. And so we can have that expectant hope that God will work again. And I know that being expectant in this way is a vulnerable thing to do. It's a place where we should be able to uh, have faith, but it can be hard when you're in the middle of difficult circumstances. And the cool thing about living in, in this time of history, as opposed to where Mordecai was, is that we have even more examples and shows of God's grace and faithfulness to look back on. And we have the biggest example of Jesus and his life and death and resurrection. So in the same way that Mordecai likely looked back to moments in history that God had been faithful, we can do the same, and we can have faith that God will continue working and do it again. And lastly, the thing I think we learned most from Esther is to act in obedience. So I want to finally get to what Esther says, uh, finally, in response to um, Mordecai's response. So in in verse 15, she says, Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So we don't get a lot of insight into what Esther is thinking in these moments, but we know that she chooses the brave choice. She chooses to be obedient to God placing her in such a time as this and to choose to be uh, responsive to him and, and take a step in obedience. When Mordecai points out God's grace and reminds her of who she is, I think it emboldens her to follow God's leading. She even then calls the people to fast for her, and she chooses to fast herself, and she sets her face toward knowing that even if she dies, this is the right thing to do. Can you see how her story of obedience leading to God's grace actually points ahead to Jesus' story? This is sort of like Esther's Garden in Gethsemane moment. It's, it's sim- a similar choice to what Jesus had. He could go to the cross and make it possible for all of us to experience grace, or he could say, no, I'm going to do what I want to do. And he makes that choice to be obedient. He says, Father, if this is your will, I will do it. And Esther here does the same thing. She says, God, if this is your will for me and for your people, I will do it even if it means death for me. If I perish, I perish. She chooses to act in obedience. Now, sometimes in the church, when we talk about grace, uh, we sort of feel like we can't also talk about obedience, right? And it makes sense. It feels like they're separate things, like they can't go together. But the truth is, is that I think that it's actually more helpful when we think about it together. 
And at the end of the day, Esther, if she chooses not to be obedient in this situation, she doesn't lose God's grace, right? Mordecai said, God will be faithful regardless. He's going to show up and show his grace whether you choose to be a part of it or not. So Esther could choose to ignore this moment. It wouldn't discredit the grace that God has already been working in her life. It wouldn't discredit any future grace from coming to her. But she has this opportunity to choose obedience in order to uh, almost sort of be a part of God's grace in this whole thing. So God's grace is going to come no matter what, but he offers us a chance to be a part of it. He says, I am going to do this regardless of whether or not you say yes, but if you say yes, you get to be a part of my plan. You get to be a part of sharing that grace with other people. And honestly, I think doing this, her choosing obedience, she actually gets to see even more of God's grace in her life and in the lives of all of the Jewish people. Because as the story goes, I'm going to kind of give you the ending, but again, I encourage you to go and read the whole thing on your own. She goes to the king, and not only does he not kill her or banish her, he actually listens to her. And she convinces him to stop this attack on the Jews that Haman is planning. And then there's a whole lot more twists and turns. It's a it's really a wild ride. More peripety grace moments. Uh, but it ends with the Jews being saved, with Haman actually being killed, and then Mordecai takes Haman's spot and gets all of his like uh, position and wealth and everything that goes along with it. But the big thing that you need to know is that God had a plan to save his people. He's the hero of the story. He's the one who's the savior. But he's willing to involve Esther in his plan of grace if she's willing to be obedient to him. And the same is true for us today. God is willing to involve us in his plan of grace if we're willing to be obedient to him. So we see that God works his grace behind the scenes. He's always doing it. It's a part of his character. And when we see it, we're called to respond in obedience because when we do, we get to be a part of it and we get to experience even more of it in our lives, even when it's difficult. And as I was uh, reading this story and th- reflecting on it, I uh, found myself thinking about um, some friends of ours who have really lived this out, have really lived this uh, experience out. So Joel has a friend from college who, um, while they were pregnant, they found out that their child had a rare skeletal disorder called thanatorphic dysplasia. And this disorder often results in death immediately after childbirth and, or sometimes before. And so they were asked if they wanted to terminate the pregnancy when they found this out. And they both felt like this was one of those for such a time as this moments in their life. So they decided that they were going to share this baby's story with others, that they were, I mean, I don't think they ever even considered terminate, terminating the pregnancy, but they decided not only that, but they were going to, uh, to share this story with other people. And before she was even born, they decided to name her Esther. And I want to read the update that they shared when they first started sharing their story. So this comes from uh, Esther's mom, Brittany. She says, The story of Esther in the Bible has had a significant impact on my spiritual journey. Esther of the Bible is a Jewish woman of great courage and boldness. She finds herself in an unexpected position, uh, but her cousin declares that this, there is great purpose in her having this position of influence for such a time as this, because her people are in oppression and facing annihilation. Esther shows great courage, willing to risk her life to rescue her people as she declares, if I perish, 
I perish. Esther was a fighter, and God was up to something good in her life. She said, our Esther is also facing unexpected circumstances, but she too has been put in a position of influence. We know that God has chosen the three of us for this journey for such a time as this. When people are searching and seeking for life, hope, identity, purpose, and meaning, and temporary fleeting things apart from Christ that cannot satisfy and cannot save. And we trust that God is up to something good in Esther's story. No matter how long her life is, if she perishes, she perishes. We pray that the life she fights will speak of our only hope in Christ and radically rescue and change people's lives. Since then, they have advocated for Esther. She's now two and a half years old. Uh, And the things that they have prayed for and asked other people to join in praying for include things like for God to be glorified, for people to come to know the saving grace of Jesus through their story, and for people to recognize the value and worth of every single person, regardless of their abilities or disabilities. And they've had so many opportunities to share God's grace with other people because of this story. They've shared it with other uh, families of kiddos who also have the same condition, with all of the many, many doctors and nurses and health professionals that they've come in contact with. They share it on their Facebook page where they post all of their updates. And they've even had opportunities. They've been on the news in Fargo, in Minneapolis, and even in People magazine. So these friends, they face an incredibly difficult circumstance, and they still do. And they chose to have faith that God was working behind the scenes to bring them to such a time as this. And even though it has been more difficult than I could probably ever imagine, I also know that they have seen more of God's grace in their life than I think they could have ever imagined. So as we wrap up this morning, I want to ask you, where has God's grace brought you? Where do you maybe find yourself in a such, as time, such a time as this type of a moment? Maybe you need to remember who you are, to be reminded that you're a child of an incredibly gracious God, and you need to live that out in the spheres of influence that he has placed you in, to not hide the fact that you follow Jesus. Or maybe you're in a really difficult circumstance right now, and it feels like there is no way that God's grace could be working. And you need to have faith that God is still working, and he will do it again. He will continue to show his grace time and time again, because that's who he is. Or maybe you've noticed a such a time as this type of moment in your life. Or maybe someone else has pointed it out to you, right? We can't ignore the fact that Esther didn't see it on her own, but Mordecai pointed it out. Sometimes we're the people who point it out, and sometimes we're the ones who get it pointed out to us. And maybe you know there's a step of obedience that you need to take in your life to follow God in whatever situation you're in. So whatever situation you might be in, I truly believe that God's grace is working in your life. I have faith that God is going to continue working. And I encourage you to think about, as we kind of, we're going to move into this time of reflection through worship and communion and prayer, I invite you to really think about where God might be calling you to take that step of obedience. Where has his grace brought you and put you in such a time as this that you might need to take that step? So as I said, we're going to kind of transition into a time of worship through song, and then we're also going to be taking communion. And communion is a really great time for us to reflect on all of these things, to remember who we are, to remember what God has already done on the cross and in his resurrection, 
who he is, who, how he shows his grace to us. So as we take communion, I invite you to think about that. I invite you to continue thinking uh, kind of about how you maybe need to, to take those steps of obedience for God. So I'm going to pray for us, uh, and then we will transition into that time of worship. Heavenly Father, uh, we praise you that you are always working in our life. Even when we don't see it, even when we, you know, maybe ignore it or pretend that it's just a coincidence or give ourselves credit for the things you're doing in our lives, Lord, we praise you that we know you are working, that you are a gracious God, and that we can have faith that you are going to continue to show your grace to us just as you always have. Lord, would you help us to see where we need to uh, notice the grace that you've given us uh, in a way that helps us know what next steps to take. Help us to not be afraid to act in obedience and to follow you, to share, be a part of your plan of grace that you have, to join what you're doing in the world. We ask today that as we uh, continue to worship you and and to pray and reflect, uh, that you would just be with each and every one of us. Would you remind us who we are? Would you speak to us? Um, Would you give us the courage to listen? In your name we pray. Amen.